what does God look like? What does God look like? I, you know, we, uh, we're Presbyterians and we don't have uh, stained glass uh, uh, images of uh, Jesus or something uh, on our uh, walls uh, or in our window frames or whatever. What does God look like? We don't know. That's the bottom line. We just don't know. As you read the Gospel of John, as you read his prologue in John chapter 1, these first 18 verses that we're going to be looking at this morning, and you could turn there if you'd like. Um, I think the one thing, one thing uh, that you need to know this morning is that John tells us very carefully that God is incorporeal, that, that he is invisible to us, that he doesn't have a corpus, a body. Okay, and you, we need to understand that, and we, we know that. You heard about the little girl, right? The, the little girl was drawing a picture, and she's feverishly working away on her picture, you know, and, and her mom leaves over the table, and, and she asks the, the perennial question that every parent asks when their child is drawing something, and you're not quite sure. You go, well, honey, sweetie, what, what are you drawing? And you know what the little girl said. Well, I'm drawing a picture of God. And mom goes, honey, nobody knows what God looks like. Little girl says, they will when I'm done. (laughs) Well, you know what? That's what John's doing for us this morning. He's drawing us a picture of who God is. And it's just not some child scribbling on a piece of paper or, or some attempt at artwork. But he will describe for us who Jesus is. If you want to know what God looks like, then look at Jesus. That's John's point to us today. If you want to know what God looks like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks, look at what Jesus thinks. If you want to know what God says, listen to what Jesus has to say. If you want to know God's plan, it has been fully revealed to us in Christ. All that we need to know about God, of God, is in his word, and in his word, the Son. So this morning, that's our purpose. All we need to know of God is in the word, in his Son. We can look at Jesus and understand God. Having said that, let's read John 1, verses 14 to 18. And let's listen and let the Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. Let the Holy Spirit convict us and convince us of our need for a Savior. Let him reach into our hearts and make the word alive. This is the inerrant, infallible word of God, and it is good for us for today. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said. He who comes after me ranks before me. Because he was before me. For from his fullness. We have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. 
Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we pray that we would see Jesus. Father, that, that as the word is opened by your spirit to our hearts, that we would see the beauty and the glory and the splendor of the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Fill our hearts with your presence. Warm our souls with your spirit. Make us into the testimony of life and light that you've called us to be, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you realize that uh, the Exodus, and you're going, wait, 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 where are you going? But I want you to think about this with me for just a minute. When you think about the Exodus, the people of Israel fleeing from Egypt so many years ago, when you think about the Exodus, um, it's one of the greatest mass migrations of all of human history. I did a little research just looking at numbers and that kind of thing, and uh, the picture's not very bright here this morning, but, but uh, you get the idea. Those are not trees. Um, those are supposed to be people, and that's supposed to be the cloud uh, of glory leading God's people. But there were some two to two and a half million people who left the land of Egypt following the living word, following God, following that cloud that led them into the wilderness. I was thinking about that, and, and you know, when they left Egypt, you remember how they left? They had looted the Egyptians. They had taken all the, the wonderful, splendorous uh, things that Egypt had to offer with them. They had a certain splendor to them, and they were just laden down with the treasures of Egypt. Can you imagine two and a half million people setting off into the wilderness laden with all the treasure of Egypt? They probably looked pretty glorious, pretty spectacular as they started off on that wilderness journey, right? I mean, they had gold and silver. They had, they had all the things of wealth and, and uh, position and everything else. But then they crossed the Red Sea and then they wandered for a little while and the dust and the dirt, the difficulties of travel, just the, just the, the day-to-day wear on uh, all that they had. They, they moved from probably looking pretty splendid to looking like refugees. I can imagine what Israel looked like at year five. Wonder what they looked like at year 15 as they wandered in the wilderness. Wonder how their tents held up. Wonder how their property, and I know God provided for them in miraculous ways, and their shoes didn't even wear out. But they were pretty dirty, they were pretty disheveled, they were pretty disorganized. They hardly possessed the glory that they left Egypt with, the glory that they had gone into the wilderness with but you know what israel had a glory about them that didn't reside in the outward trappings of life they had a glory about them that no other nation had had in their day why because the tabernacle the presence of the living god was in the center of their camp 
was in the center of their of their whole society inside the the tabernacle that was over which the cloud rested was the ark of the covenant with the glory of the lord filling that tent if we take a fair and honest look at ourselves as christians today i think that uh we as christians probably are a lot like israel we start off with a pretty big sense of glory and, and of splendor and everything else, and then after a few trials and troubles, we lose some of that glory. But like the Israelites, we have the glory of God in our midst. John wrote, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this morning, as we think about John 1, 14, I want us to think about what that really means, to, to know what the Word means. When, when John talks about the Word, understand that he's not talking about um, a principle, okay? He's not talking about some sort of personification of divine truth. He is talking about a person. He is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth. The Word, speaking with meaning and clarity, is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. In fact, John says that the Word was so involved with the world that he became flesh. Jesus was so involved with our world that he was willing to become flesh. There's no greater way in which God could say that he was utterly committed to his creation than for Jesus, the creator, to come and be a part of creation. That's what we celebrate. That's why we put Christmas trees and wreaths and candles and everything, that, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that he became flesh. That's the most graphic word that we could, the Bible doesn't say Jesus became a man. You know, he, he didn't say he became, became a body. He says he became flesh. I think there are three scandals in the New Testament, at least three. And I think it's, it's a wise thing to understand what they are. The first one is that God would choose to speak to mankind. That God would bow himself down to communicate with us with words. That he would speak to us in words that we can understand. If you understand who the true living God is, to, to consider the fact that he himself would come and speak to us in language is an amazing scandal. God values language even though we don't. The second scandal, I think, that the scriptures teach us, particularly in the New Testament, is that God was willing for the second person of the Trinity to die on the cross. He was able to give himself. He came in the person of his son and died on the cross. The third scandal is that God became flesh. That God took on this mantle, this, this flesh and blood, this skin and bones, this brain and muscle, this, this body that you and I live in and became flesh. The precise words of John 1, 14 are important. Look carefully. 
It doesn't say that the word changed into flesh. It says it became flesh. The word Jesus became flesh. God, without ceasing to be God, became man. There was, there was no diminishing of his deity. He was still God, but he acquired manhood. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. This Christmas season, my prayer for all of us in this room today, for New Hope Church, my prayer is that the very one who, who flung the moon and the stars into their place, who spoke and creation came into being and then plunged into our humanity with us will bewilder us one more time will overwhelm us and cause us to cover our astonished faces and like isaiah say woe is me i am undone how can i worship i mean think about it let the reality of who jesus is sink into your heart the eternal word who was with God became the man Jesus. He didn't stop being eternal. He didn't stop being God. He didn't stop being the word. He became man. He acquired the additional properties of a man without changing his original nature. Fully God, fully man. Okay, the theological term for that is the hypostatic union. Okay? Now you got a big theological word. Okay? Fully God, fully man. He didn't give up one to take on the other. One doesn't diminish and the other increase. 100%, 100%. That's what happened when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's what happened in Mary's womb. Fully God, fully man. That's tough stuff that the early church took 450 years to hammer these truths out, to work it, work it out. Um, I was showering the other morning. I was, sometimes you do your best thinking in the shower, don't you? I mean, I know I do my best singing in the shower because the acoustics are good in there. But I'm trying to hold that down, so I'm just quietly showering and thinking to myself. And I was thinking about all of these things in John's gospel here in, in this passage and the thought occurred to me exactly what was infant Jesus like? If he's fully God and he's fully man and he's an infant, what was that like? What was it like to change his diaper, to, to, to change his swaddling cloths, if you will? What was it like to, to as he nursed? What kind of child? What? It's so inconceivable. I have no clue as to how to answer that question. I wonder what Mary thought. I wonder what Mary's other children thought after they came. I've often thought about how hard it would be to have Jesus as your big brother. Just ask my sister, she'll tell you. <laughs> That was really bad. I'm sorry, y'all. Forgive me. But have you ever really thought about the fact that Jesus literally is fully God, fully man? The distinction of the Council of Chalcedon said this. The distinction of his natures is by no means taken away by the union 
but rather the property of each nature being preserved. The second person of the Trinity is distinctly God, distinctly man, united in one person, the man, the Lord, the God, the Jesus, the Son of God, remains infinite and unchangeable as the Word of God. And yet the infinite entered the finite. The Word became flesh. It's not like he took on a human body. It's not like he just threw on a, a, a covering of, a, of flesh like a coat over his divinity somehow. He was still completely divine. His whole nature became that of a human being, but yet he was fully God. Watch out for the error, though. There's, there's, a, there's a struggle here. One of the reasons that John emphasized the flesh of Jesus, uh, particularly in the early church, is that the early church was spending a lot of time discussing exactly what this balance, who Jesus really was, and they were wrestling with that. And in the first century, there were people who taught a heretical view about who Jesus really was. There, it's called docetism, another theological word. You know what? I've got three or four more theological words for you today, okay? So the docetics, uh, they believe that Christ was God, but not man, that he only appeared to be human, that, that he wasn't really, you know, human, but, but and, and it's a misleading teaching that actually continues today. One of the easiest illustrations that I could come up with was the illustration of Salvador Dali. You know Salvador Dali? Pop up the screen. <clears throat> what a character, okay? He's the melting clocks artist. He's the guy who painted the melting clocks. Salvador Dali, his famous painting, The Crucifixion, go on and pop that one up, his, <clears throat> shows Jesus... And, and Jesus is hanging from a cross, but look how, how Jesus is hanging on that cross. Jesus is about three feet away from the cross. He's suspended in the air. What's Dolly trying to say there? What's he saying in that piece of art? He's saying that Jesus wasn't a real man who really died on a real cross with real nails and with real wood and with real flesh. No, he just seemed to be. He just wasn't, was, a, was not completely there. He was, he was not real flesh. You see how that strikes at the very core of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us as, as he became our substitute, as Jesus really bore our sin? If Jesus wasn't genuinely nailed to the cross, if his blood was not shed, there is no atonement for our sin. Salvador Dali loved to paint Christ and loved to paint uh, biblical scenes and that kind of thing. The bottom one here is another one of Dolly's uh, paintings. It's called uh, The Last Supper. And you kind of have a feeling for The Last Supper. But if you look carefully at Jesus, who's the one in the center, he's kind of ghost-like. You can see through Jesus. Again, Dolly is talking in terms of Jesus not being fully man. Just one illustration of that. In the art world. Think about that. What does that do? When you take away the idea that God became man, you strike at the heart of the gospel message that we so desperately need. Someone would say that, that for God to become man is it, too dirty. You know, uh, it, it's too low. It, it's too base. Uh, to take that away, you, you have a Jesus who can't sympathize with all of your weaknesses, though, don't you? You have a Jesus who, who 
is not tempted in all things as we are, who remains completely holy even in spite of his temptation. You take away the heart of the gospel. That's why docetism is such a horrible heresy. You've taken the the meaning of the gospel out of what Jesus Christ came to do when he became flesh and dwelt among us. It happens in our world today. Oh, you know, uh, I believe that uh, Christianity is is all about uh, 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 living in such a way that we have this worldview, we have this philosophy of life, uh, and we take Jesus off the cross. Yeah, Jesus was a good man. Uh, he did a lot of things. He died. Yeah, he died, and he rose again, but, you know, that's just spiritually discerned. And You see what you've done? You've taken the core of the truth of the gospel away. Well, John doesn't stop there. He goes on and, and he talks about the fact that Jesus dwelt among us. When a person makes a home uh, among a group of people, he moves in with them, right? When New Hope Presbyterian Church called me 13, 14 years ago, what did we do? We decided that we would move from Baltimore, Maryland to Eustis, Florida because we wanted to be with God's people here. I couldn't be the pastor of New Hope Presbyterian Church if I didn't live here. If I didn't feel the things that you feel, if I didn't identify with the things that you have to deal with day in and day out. I wanted to share with you the things that you share. I wanted to share the struggles of life. I wanted to know you to be a part. The incarnation is the moving in of the eternal word so that he utterly identifies with us in every way. You know what uh, psychologists call the most significant, the most traumatic event of life? Birth. They say that birth is the most traumatic event in all of human life. I was thinking about that, thinking about picking hymns for worship this week and and next week, and the hymn, uh, O Come, all you faithful came to mind as I was as I was thinking about it. And I was reading through the words to the hymn. There's a great phrase in there, one that really had never struck me before. You can look at it. It's "O come, all you faithful." It says, "He talking of Jesus abhors not the virgin's womb." That one never hit me before. I mean, I you know. I've sung it who knows how many times. He abhors not the virgin's womb. The eternal God of all the universe did not abhor a virgin's womb. He got it right. How messy. How utterly human. I think perhaps maybe we think about the birth of Jesus in too sanitized a way. Maybe our living nativity helped us with that somewhat. You know, we had the stable, we had the, the, the critters, the animals out there, and uh, we had the, you know, the dirt and the hay and everything else, the sand and the grit. That stable that Jesus was born in was not the cleanest place on the planet, was it? It was a place where they cared for and where they uh, fed animals. It was a place where they they kept them uh, out of the elements and that kind of thing. That feed trough that he was laid in after 
uh, hours of labor in a stable on a dirt floor. Birth is messy. You know, I was there for the birth of all four of my children. You're not fooling me. It's messy. What a wonder. The eternal word of God did not shun being born. It had to happen like that. You realize that, don't you? He had to be born. Only in the complete identification with our flesh could Jesus do what Adam failed to do. The first Adam didn't live without sin. The first Adam failed, and sin came into the world. The second Adam had to be flesh and had to dwell among us so that he could identify with us. He had to succeed in all that he did. Adam sinned and died as a man. Only a man could do what Jesus did. Adam failed to do what the mediator succeeded in doing for us. Why is that? Because flesh has to die. Well, I want to talk about another aspect of John's uh, presentation to us, if you will, of the word. And I want to talk about the glory of the dwelling. John tells us not merely that uh, the word became flesh, but that he dwelt among us. That word dwelt among us, you know, if you're reading the King James, maybe it says tabernacle there. And uh, that's, a, that's a great translation for the word ekason. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's a Greek word that means um, tent. It means to dwell among. It, it's um, a word that, that got translated as tabernacled among us. John is, is directing us to think back about the Exodus that I mentioned earlier. Okay? When God dwelled among the Israelites in the tabernacle is what he's looking back to. The tabernacle, do you know anything about the tabernacle? It's a big tent, okay? The tent was about uh, 15 feet wide and uh, 45 feet long, okay? We borrowed a, a camper from a friend uh, because we've got family uh, staying with us. And uh, the tabernacle is just a little bit bigger than the camper that we're sleeping in, okay? I mean, a little bit. 15 by 45. The whole structure there, uh, it had three areas. It has that outer courtyard. That's where the priests made their sacrifices. That's where um, they uh, washed themselves before entering the outer room, uh, the, which is called the holy place. Um, they entered the holy place. Inside the holy place were the golden uh, candlestick, uh, the table with showbread, uh, the altar of incense. And then on the innermost place in the tabernacle is called the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant resided, where God himself dwelt. Everything about the tabernacle is symbolic. Everything about the tabernacle speaks of spiritual realities, and it's all pointing to Jesus. You can take the tabernacle and you can, you can show how the tabernacle points to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came as God's true tabernacle. You know, the tabernacle is the place where God moved in and lived with his people. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. All of it points to him. Uh, the heavenly tabernacle, it looks forward to the heavenly one, the, the earthly one. The wilderness tabernacle looks forward to the heavenly one, the new heavens and the new earth. Um, you know, it, 
it was the place where, where Jesus' presence was felt. You think about the tabernacle, it wasn't very impressive. It's just a big tent. Isaiah 53, 2 says, He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. That's the Old Testament, Emmanuel. The tabernacle is the place where God met with men. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The tabernacle was the center of Israel's camp. What did Jesus say? It was the gathering place of God's people. Jesus says, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. The tabernacle is a place where the priests uh, and their families came to be fed. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It was the place where the sins of God's people were sacrificed for. Hebrews says this, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. You understand how significant, how significant the idea of the tabernacle was? The tabernacle was a place of worship. I really don't think we understand the Old Testament until we understand a little bit about that. That Jesus, that it represents Jesus. It represents his incarnation. It represents his holiness. It represents everything that he would be. And although it was a humble thing, it was a thing of glory because in the tabernacle was the very presence of God. Jesus tabernacles with us. And inside of our very beings, if we've been born again, we've been given the Spirit. Much like the tabernacle. He dwells in us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Thousands of years before Jesus was born in the flesh, God planned and purposed that there would be a tabernacle to show God's people their need and that would point to Jesus and that would point to the new heavens and the new earth. You see, the gospel is one big story. It's the story of God's creation. It's the story of man's fall into sin led by our father, Adam. And not only is it creation and fall, it is redemption in Jesus becoming flesh, the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So it's, it is creation, it is fall, it is redemption, and it's restoration we long for the second advent of Jesus. Not the second Sunday of Advent. Oh, that's great. But the second advent of Jesus when he comes back again in glory and power and majesty and we see the glory of God in its fullness. You remember the story of Moses? You remember how when, when Moses wanted to look at the glory of God and God himself warned Moses that he couldn't look? It happens in Exodus chapter 33. 
Let me just read a, a, a couple of verses there in verse 18, 33, 18. Moses says to God, Please, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh and the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Do you remember what happened to Moses after that? He went down the mountain, and Israel couldn't see him. Because the glory of God rested on him in such a way that he was, he was unbearable. Think about that for just a minute. We have the privilege of looking into the face of the word of God, the word Jesus, and the word contained in the scriptures. By faith through his word. Later on, one day coming, by sight we'll see the face of Jesus who will be the full revelation of God and all of his light and all of his glory. You know what the word for glory is, by the way, in the Hebrew? It's the word kavod. K-A-B-O-D is an easy transliteration for it. The Greek is doxa, which is the word we get doxology from. Doxa. The word kavod means weight. It means heaviness. It means, it means, it means weightedness, weightiness. Gold is weighty, right? You don't just drop a bar of gold in your back pocket and go about business. I mean, there's more than one reason for that, I'm sure. But it's heavy. It has some substance to it. A lot of Christianity today in our world is what I'd call Christianity light. We're like a light beer. You know, we're not, we're not, we're not all out. We're not full. We're not... You know, give me a little Jesus, just enough to make me happy, and it's all good. God thunders into our world in his flesh, and he says that we behold him in Jesus, the glory, the full glory of God, full of grace and truth. That's not Christianity light, y'all. That's the full weightiness of his glory. That's his grace, full of grace. What is grace? Grace is not just a sprinkling of fairy dust on our lives. It's not just a warm, happy feeling or something like that. Grace is the power of God that lifts you and me out of the domain of death and darkness and causes us to be born again into the light and the glory of God. It transforms us. Grace is God's power erupting in our hearts and souls by his own intervention so that we're not dead anymore. We move from heaven or from hell to heaven. Grace is a power that is embodied in Jesus. Did you hear it? And we behold in him the God of glory full of grace and truth. 
transforming power of God that changes. What's truth? 25 times or more uh, in the Gospel of John, we read about truth. It's not, it, what, what is truth, you know? There have been others who've asked that question. What is truth? Is, is it just factual truth, just facts? Well, yeah, truth is facts, there, that's, but that's not all there is to it. Is truth just, just is it just objective? Yes, but, but it's so much more than just that. What God means here as he talks about Jesus being full of grace and truth is he's talking about the idea that, that Jesus is truth embodied. It, it's truth enfleshed. It's truth that has come to life and live among us. It means the truth of the character of who Jesus is. Glory in the Gospel of John is also used to describe the death of Jesus. In John chapter 12, we read this. It says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. That was a good timing on that, actually. John Donne wrote uh, uh, the book of Uncommon Prayers. I want to just read a little quote from that. It says, The whole of Christ's life was a continual passion. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born a martyr. He found a Golgotha where he was crucified, even in Bethlehem where he was born. For to his tenderness, then, the straws were almost as sharp as the thorns after, and the manger as uneasy at first as the cross at last. His birth and his death were but one continual act, and his Christmas Day and his Good Friday are but the evening and the morning of one and the same day. From the creche to the cross is an inseparable line. Christmas only points forward to Good Friday and Easter. It can have no meaning apart from that, where the Son of God displayed his glory by his death. That's what we celebrate. Grace and truth are a person. The Word became flesh. The Word became a person and dwelt among us. Only a person who understands who Jesus is. That the Son of God has utterly and completely identified with us in the middle of our most serious crises in life. Only someone who can understand that can say that in those times of trial, God is truly good. That God is the one. Only somebody who understands that God is for them so much so that he took upon himself this bag of bones. That he became like us so that he could take our suffering. God's son was not spared so that he could die for all our trials and weaknesses and diseases. He died for everything. For everything that would threaten us and keep us from heaven. Only bleeding flesh 
could die for all of that. And die he did. He died on that cross. But he was raised again to life and to the glory of God. He shares in the Father's presence now. He shared in the Father's presence from all eternity. He lives. He makes intercession for you. And when you hurt, when you're sick, and when you lose, you see, grace is a person. Truth is a person. Jesus has come to us in the flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what we celebrate. Let's pray. The Incarnation. The whole idea of the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man. The whole idea of the second Adam taking our sin. The whole idea of grace and, and truth being embodied in Jesus and, and in what he came to do for us is overwhelming to me, Father. It makes my heart want to cry out with thankfulness and with joy. It makes me want to bow in, in heartfelt worship. It makes me want to sing like the angels sang. Father, I pray that as we contemplate the word becoming flesh in our midst, that we might be driven to worship, to worship that is informed, that, that understands what you have done for us. Oh, Father, may this Christmas season we really and truly understand that the very one who spoke by the power of his word and everything came into creation, that, that, that may we understand that that's who we worship. May we respond to you. May we love you. May we ascribe to you the glory that's truly given and do your name. We ask in Jesus' name himself, amen.